Good morning, church. Uh, if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, that's where we're going to be spending a bit of time this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. And it's up on the screen there for you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father Forgive your trespasses. Well, let me start by saying how unqualified I feel to lead a sermon on prayer. Who can think of prayer without thinking of Daniel, Mark Chappell mentioned Daniel last week and uh, him risking his life to pray three times a day. Or those soaring prayers of David in the Psalms, one of which we read at the beginning of this service. Or our Lord Jesus withdrawing from everybody to pray all night. No matter who you compare me with, I fall short. On top of this, I think of myself as a still fairly young Christian. Um, December 2012 is the first time that I prayed as an adult. And I know that there are many of you here, particularly in the older generation, who have been praying and who've been praying faithfully for many years longer than I have and even longer than my own lifetime. So I feel it'd be dishonest of me just to stand here and give you some textual analysis and impress you with some theological terms and maybe a couple of words of Greek and then tell you all to go home and pray as if I've got it all figured out. I want to be clear, I don't, I don't really care today if you forget every single word that I say. My goal, my prayer is not that you would meditate on my words or on, say, Tony's words or Tim Keller's words or anybody's words, my goal today is that you would leave this place filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with a new desire and a stronger desire to seek the face of God. 
In 2 Corinthians 12, God says to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. And so with Paul, I say this morning, I will boast all the more of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest on me. I pray that as I share with you my struggles with prayer and as we pray together, that we would each one of us know this power of Christ who is the one who saves us and who is supernaturally present with us as we speak to God in prayer. Let's turn to Matthew 6 verse 9. This is such a familiar passage of scripture that for me at least it was helpful to, uh, to hear it in context. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. It's really the, um, the model prayer or the prayer that the Lord gives to us to teach us how to pray. Um, and it occupies a longer block of teaching about how followers of Jesus are meant to approach religious duties, giving, prayer and fasting. It tells us that our religious duties are in fact privileges that express a changed heart, a changed set of desires to, to please God and not to serve our own time, uh, our own pride rather. And this is a theme of Jesus' teaching. I think it's particularly worth remembering as a church as we seek to move, um, I had it written down as move uh, in, move up and move out. It's move up, move close and move out. Um, but it makes us think, what are our motivations? Who are we serving? Jesus makes it clear that in order to be a blessing to others, we must first adopt a right attitude to him. Thinking about the passage in context, I really like knowing that I can pray to God whenever I like. And we certainly can, and we do. But hearing that my relationship with God somehow depends on how I treat other people, that's a bit harder. Now it goes without saying that first and foremost, the fact that we can approach God in prayer at all depends on the blood-bought forgiveness that God extends to us in the person of Jesus. But throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns us that if this gospel truth doesn't bring about change in our attitudes and our behavior as a result, then we imperil our very souls. The stakes could not be higher. How then should we pray? I'll look at verse 9. Our Father in heaven. Take a moment to let that sink in. God is our Father. It's hard to overstate how revolutionary that is. There are plenty of images in the Hebrew Bible that speak of God as, as being like a father or that compare him uh, to a father. And I think if we just had those Old Testament scriptures, we would still be able to affirm a doctrine of God's fatherhood. There are even occasions where God speaks of himself as the father of Israel in a corporate national sense. But this is the first time in history that anyone has encouraged God's people to address the creator of the universe, the mighty God Yahweh, whose very name was too holy even to be written out in full, to address him as father. It's shocking. 
Even today to Muslims, for example, the idea that we could call God Father is blasphemy. In fact, we read of this in the Bible. Many of the Bible-believing, orthodox religious people wanted to kill Jesus for this very reason. John 5.18, read what the Jews, how the Jews responded to that claim of Jesus calling God Father. They understood what it meant and they wanted to put him to death. At the same time, I think it's consistent with what we read in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament. And we've got those for a reason. It speaks of the consistent character of God. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 4 verse 7, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord God is to us whenever we call upon him? Our God is near to us. It is right and fitting that we address him in these familial terms, in this family language. At the same time, and this is, a, this is one of the mysteries of our faith, we have to hold two things in tension. At the same time, we have to approach God with a sense of awe, with a sense of his holiness and the weight that that carries. Look at the second clause in that sentence. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In the ancient Near East, fathers were shown much more respect than they are in the 21st century, particularly in the West. Moreover, the family name was so much more than simply a word. It was your reputation. It was your character. It spoke of who the community recognised you to be. If the family name was something so precious in these ancient honour-shame cultures, then how much more should the name, the totality of who our God is, be held in reverence, be kept holy? This is the God who spoke order into chaos at the very beginning of creation. This is the God who is shrouded in thick darkness on the mount when he goes to meet with Moses. This is the God of whom the prophet Isaiah says, Woe is me when he sees his glory in the temple. Woe is me, for I am undone, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We have a heavenly Father, and what a blessing that is. What comfort, what confidence that fills us with. Yet for all this intimacy, for all this familial language, we stop short of being too familiar with our God. Ultimately, he is not our equal. His name is holy. I want to make much of this because the first half of the Lord's Prayer, this pattern for us to emulate, does not initially involve us bringing anything or us, us requesting anything from God. As we come into his presence through prayer, we need to remind ourselves of what that means. Look at the next verse. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is so much that this means both for our lives now and for the life to come. Yes, we ask our Heavenly Father for what we need and we should and, and he tells us to. But we come into his presence in the first instance to get our priorities straight. 
The ancient Christian writer Augustine described sin as a condition of having disordered loves. Not that our love for others or even our love for creation or even our love for things like our health, not that those are bad in and of themselves, but that they need to come under the lordship and and the love, the supreme love in our lives of Christ. Indeed, a few verses on in Matthew 6.21, Jesus tells us where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Biblical prayer, then, is a way of living out the command to set our minds on things above and not on things of the earth. If, as I start to pray, I simply bring my requests to him without first remembering who he is, then I run the risk of growing cynical of a God who doesn't do what I ask him. Jesus instructs us to reorder our loves, our desires, And this model for prayer places God's will in authority over and above my own will. Psalm 37 verse 4 touches on this. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's so crucial that those two things are in that order, not the other way around. We experience delight and satisfaction in remembering who God is and what he has done for us. So the question arises, does God answer prayer? Does he fulfill our requests? And the answer is we read our Bibles from Abraham all the way to the Apostle Paul is a resounding yes. God does answer prayer. And it can be spectacular. But at the same time, If we submit our desires to his will, we acknowledge that our will and his will may not always line up. God is sovereign and we are not. He can refuse a request or he can answer our prayers in a way that we haven't anticipated or that we fail to perceive. Listen very carefully to what I say next. We will not see spectacular change in the world every time we pray, except, and this is crucial, except that prayer changes us every time. God may not move mountains or heal us or take away our suffering, though we seek it with tears. But... God's kingdom, like that tiny grain of a mustard seed in the parable, growing into a huge spreading tree, God's kingdom will come in your heart and your life as you pray those powerful words, your kingdom come. Ultimately, Jesus is our model for prayer. And remember Jesus praying in the garden at the end of his life. He says, Father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Church, I must be honest with you that I'm dissatisfied with my prayer life. I want the kind of prayer life that I glimpse when I read the Psalms, when I read about Daniel or about our Lord Jesus. 
But I also know that my experience of prayer in the past spurs me on. There are moments of peace. There are experiences I have of knowing God that I've only had in quiet meditation on his word and in private prayer with him. Often as well, these moments come surprisingly amidst the most disturbing and the most anxious of my outward circumstances. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, recommended three daily prayers, like Daniel. And this was something that I came across and was really challenged by preparing this sermon. I'm ashamed to say that really until a couple of months ago, I would pray in the morning and unless something really surprising happened, that was generally it. Spurgeon's program for prayer, as well as the morning devotion, includes the midday offering and the evening sacrifice. And as a teacher uh, surrounded by classes of teenagers usually uh, at midday, I have found the, the midday offering perhaps a bit unrealistic. But there's certainly value in taking a few moments during your day to take stock, take the measure of yourself according to the prayer that you prayed that morning. How are you going living that day under God's authority? The main habit that I've formed as a result of this challenge uh, is the evening sacrifice. I've, I've been very lax when it comes to praying in the evening. When I'm tired, maybe I'm going to bed late, things have come up, and I'm at the end of my tether. I've been doing it, though, the last, the last couple of months. And I haven't noticed any sort of fireworks or fanfare accompanying my evening prayer. But I have noticed that my morning prayers are easier. I'm less distracted to come into the presence of God the following morning. I want to share with you a couple of practical tools. The first one, really, for me, this exercise book is... Um, my prayer journal. I find it very powerful to write things down and particularly to write by hand and to have a hard copy of it. Uh, it's a discipline that takes a bit of time and it's not something I do every day, but as a weekly or fortnightly exercise, it's incredibly powerful to give voice to some of those silent prayers and to reflect on months, years later and see how God has been answering those prayers and how he's been changing me. So that's one practical tool. Another one, Tony sent out um, via the church social media just before Christmas. So go back over your emails and, and try to find it. There's a more extensive document. This is from Dick Eastman's book called The Hour That Changes the World. He actually advocates a, a model of prayer that involves five or ten minute um, uh, mini, sort of mini prayers along these lines making up an hour over the course of the day it's a challenge to be reminded that prayer is not just praying one thing over and over again it's not just your same daily prayers although certainly like the persistent widow there's a place for that but this makes me realise that there are times that we need to set aside to linger in the presence of God even if sometimes all that we can muster, like the tax collector in the parable, is a broken-hearted, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
The biggest thing that I've put into practice from Eastman's book, however, is beginning and ending with praise. That surely is how we remind ourselves of the goodness of God and who he is. Another book that I can really spruik, I've read this one multiple times and I reread it in preparation for this sermon, is uh, Timothy Keller's Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. He condenses some great wisdom from many, many thinkers over centuries from various traditions of Christianity. The most practical help that he gives, though, is to condense the Lord's Prayer into this memory aid so that as you're praying, you can organise your, your thoughts in a biblical way. I found this very useful, just that following that acronym uh, each time I pray. Finally, one way that I'd encourage you to move from meditating on scripture to prayer is to use music. Music's a gift of God that's been part of Christian worship as far back as the Bible records. And yes, like anything, it can be a distraction. But if you look back to the medieval tradition and the, the monks in the monastery praying those prayers at specific times of the day, that was all done in chant or in song and different rhythms and different uh, melodies would accompany various types of prayer. I know the medieval church had some problems, but even Martin Luther, who's kind of our, or the spiritual forebear of our tradition, uh, he valued that part of his training as a monk and he, he loved to use music in worship and, and private meditation and prayer throughout his life. And given that we have a God who made himself flesh, I don't think we need to be afraid of using music to orient our emotions and our bodies to God uh, in prayer. Church, I have struggled to bring you this message today. I have been confronted by my own lack in this area. But years ago, when I was on the threshold of Christianity, somebody once said to me, don't wait until your life's perfect before you come to Jesus. It was good advice then, and it's good advice now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can come to you freely in prayer. We praise you that you are not a God who is distant, but that you are near to each one of us, that you have given us your spirit, and that you have put your words in our mouths. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you are stirring the hearts of all those listening to desire you more. Where there is love of self, I pray that you give us love of Christ instead. Where there is love of comfort, give us the love of obedience to you. Where there is love of image and status, give us the satisfaction of your presence. We praise you that even in our failure to pray as we should, or to desire you perfectly, it is your grace that ultimately saves us. We praise the name of Jesus, the one in whom we stand forgiven, blessed, and in whose name we pray. Amen.